This is Emergency FD Storyline. The men of my era, we learned and we gained from the experiences from the old firefighters. The men today learned from what my era of men passed on. And these men today are passing on their knowledge, which is great. It's a constant learning cycle that's going to keep firemen alive. Words from the wise, the voice of a firefighter with decades of experience. The views expressed on this program are from the guest and the host and do not necessarily represent the views of any government agency, private company, or public service. Emergency FD Storyline's focus is to tell the stories of those in the fire service and to highlight what matters to our first responders. Through the years, we can say decades in the fire service, there have been many changes. Technology, techniques, SOPs, apparatus, the list goes on. But the truth is, the job is the same. It takes a special individual to run into danger when everyone else is running out. I'm your host, Tom Mann. My next guest is one of those individuals. His name is John Reagan, Chief John Reagan. He's been called by many names, Jerry, John, JJ, and of course, he might tell you he's been called a few other names during the time of his career. Now retired from the Memphis Fire Department, Chief John Reagan's enthusiasm about the job has never left him, and you're going to see that. It was a pleasure to sit down with him in his home to learn from his experience, stories, and wisdom. You're going to like this. The words from the wise. That's our storyline. I really want to learn about the old days of the fire service and how it worked. And with me is John Reagan, who many knew as his, I knew you as a battalion chief. I was doing some work with the Memphis Fire and I remember you. And 92, 93 time, and I guess yes. you were there through 94. Yes. You have the stories of the old days. I would like you to tell me and others what it was like back when you began. You came on in what year? I came on in 1959, retired in 94, 35 years. So that's a lot. And there's a lot of change that took place from 59 to 94. One thing I was thinking about when I knew that you were coming was I was trying to piece together in my mind the differences between then and now. The thing that I remember or I can relate to more than anything is I came on at the end of of one era and the beginning of another. What I'm saying is prior to my time on the job, most of the fires, in fact, all of the fires that firemen made were common combustible fires such as wood and cotton. During World War II, they began to develop a lot of different materials, mainly plastic. My time when I started was a time when we were changing or we were going through the difference of the old wood and cotton type fires to the more severe, dangerous type fires of the synthetic materials such as plastic, which created more dangerous gases and gases we were not familiar with. 
when I came on the old MSA mask, the old mine service appliance, which was the charcoal filter gas on the back of your jacket. It was just a charcoal filter that they used in mines. The old firemen, when they didn't even have the MSA, they were called what you call leather lungs. Smoke eaters, leather lungs. Snot jerkers, (laughs) whatever you want to call us. Well, we made a lot of fires like that when I first came on. We didn't even use the charcoal because it burned so bad on your back. But we would use it when it was really necessary. Then they came out with the scuba type. Thank God for scuba divers, because this is where it came from. The original ones were made of steel containers, and they were heavy, and it was just compressed air is all it was, and it didn't last long. 10, 15 minutes of exerting yourself in a smoky fire, it was gone. And you had to come out of that mask or come out of the fire, one of the two, sometimes both, depending on the fire. Then later on, they came out with the fiberglass tanks, which were so much better. That was the era I'm talking about where we changed from one era, the old era of just gutting it out, leather lung, and using the MSA, and then beginning to use and experiment with the scubas. And one other thing they came out with later on was the pass. That thing is great because uh, it locates these firemen that are down and out and can't be found. When you came on and and you had this changeover, the era changeover, and it was changing, what was it like to breathe in that filter mask? Very confining, to be honest with you. The face piece itself was different than the ones I use today. And it was very claustrophobic. It was confining. You could breathe, you could, but you were just breathing sucked air through the charcoal filter, and it was hot air, believe me, it was hot. And you could hardly wear the mask. So that was a a big, big difference between that and the scubas because of the, when the original ones were just compressed air, it was cooler, but it wasn't as effective as the oxygen they get today. I know this, there were several fires in my latter years, when I would go in with a mask and it would fog up, you just hit that bypass and it clears up. So those are so so advantageous to the men today as opposed to the old ones. The old ones were, they were a last resort is what I'm trying to say. It, it, was it more comfortable to go in without one than it was with one? Depending on the fire. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you had just, like I say, a, a whispering fire, yeah. booster fire, uh, yeah, you could go in with or without it, but uh, it was more comfortable with it. Most of them back then, you covered exposures and you let the fire burn. There Prevented were, from relief. From right. There were fires animal. that I made that, let's take Iverson Pond Piano Company, for instance. Now, prior to when it burned down, on a Thanksgiving day, we this was an arson fire. We were on duty. Wayne Fortune and I were there. And Jenkins, I remember his name. He was lieutenant on 13s. He was actually the first on the scene at that fire. We called him Tarzan. Oh, he, he was a tough firefighter. He was good. <laughs> this was in the storage area outside the building where they had the 55-gallon drums 
of varnish and shellac and stuff like that. And they had hundreds of these barrels out there. When we pulled out of the engine house and turned uh, west on summer, you could see the column of smoke. We knew we had it that day, and that was Thanksgiving. We made the dead gum fire, and as we pulled up on the scene and got in there, and it was Jenkins on the nozzle, and Wayne and I got on one side, because 13s had laid another hand line, and they had a hand line going, and they had this five-foot applicator that we, we were on. We were working our way through those barrels. Boom! And they would blow into the air. It looked like rockets going up. Then They would go several hundred feet, and then come down, and when they hit, they would just splatter with fire. We were working our way through this sort of pathway back in there. This one fell, and when it fell, it exploded. Well, it blew us backwards. Jenkins went one way, and Wayne and I went another, and it blew my helmet completely off. Later on, I found my helmet, and it was just a, it melted. Our, our line, it, it went straight, and that five-foot applicator went up in the air like a rocket, dragging that hose line with it, and just went over behind this pile of uh, barrels. Well, Wayne and I crawled back a ways, and we, we started looking for the line, but we followed the line around. <laughs> when we got around on the back side, there was Jenkins laying on his back, and the five-foot applicator laying on top of him, and it was just going chuk 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 we got to the nozzle and turned the nozzle down and got him up and then turned it back on and went on back and fighting the fire. What was it like also in those early days? You had the steel helmets. Yeah, I got one. I got my helmets upstairs. Yeah. You have those, and then you had your turnout coat. You had hip boots with that filter bringing in. Sometimes it was very hot air. Yeah. You're breathing in. What was that like? Was that always a consideration when you were in those situations dealing with that? I know that helmet would heat up. Oh, yeah. It burned my ears. So, I, I blistered my ears on the top of my ears. Got blistered several times from being in the fire. You got that coat. You got that heat that's going right up that, that coat. You got the boots. Tell me what that was like. Describe the way it was then. I'm thinking of the comfort of today is what I'm really thinking about and what it took to do that. I mean, that's... It was, I'm a pyromaniac. <laughs> the only thing I can explain to you, my personal feelings going into fires, it was just an exhilarating feeling. Comfort did not matter. Of course, it was hot. Oh, God, it was hot. Cold. Let's reverse that. Yeah. Winter. I can remember one fire in the winter where my gloves froze so hard I couldn't bend my fingers. I got down on the sidewalk and beat my gloves on the ground so I could take them off. I remember one we made over on uh, Watkins and some apartments when I was a lieutenant on sixes. Oh, God, I think the temperature that night was about 10 or 12 degrees, and it was an apartment fire, and we had our line, and we were back 20 feet or so from the building. We were shooting our line through the window. The outside wall was ice. Mm. And the fire was on the inside, but there was ice. When the fire was over, we were loading the hose, and, you know, you put a section over your shoulder, and you drag it out to the street to roll it. Well, I had a section over my shoulder, and I was dragging that hose through the grass towards the street. Well, there were people walking in front of me, so I stopped for just, I don't know, a few seconds or so, less than a minute, 
for them to walk past. Well, when they walk past, the hose behind me had froze to the ground. Mm. That's how cold it was. We got the hose into the street, and we couldn't roll it. I remember another time at Buckeye that we had a fire. It was it was something like wind chill factor of 10 below zero, and it was temperature wow. of about 10 or so. That fire in particular, for instance, after it was over, we had to rent a flatbed truck to come out, and we loaded the hose onto the flatbed like logs so we could get it back to the engine house and lay it out on the floor so they would thaw and we could clean them. I mean, that, that, that's the cold. Now, those cold days, your coat, your boots, they were the only thing keeping you alive, really. But they were so cold it was unreal. But then back to the heat, the differences between the two are the same. They were unbearable, but you had to bear them. Our attitude back in the old days, fire call, attack. That was, that was the only thing in your mind, attack. Now, today, thank God, you have to judge the gain and the loss. What will you gain by going in? What will you lose if you do? You could lose those lives. That was not so much a consideration in the old days as it is today, which is great for what, what it should be. What are you going to gain by putting that fire out as opposed to what can you lose? Now, if there's lives in there, you got to, that's, right. that's your gain. You've got to go. And that would be your loss if you don't. You know, you, you have to consider the gain to the loss in today in, in any fires. Today, they have much better equipment. They have much better training. They have much more to study from the past hmm. and learn from the past. Back in the old days, there was not so much transcribed fires. It was just passed on by word. Today, there are so many written reports about fires that you can study. For instance... Is that something that's changed since, I mean, since you began, even at the end of your career? Right. For instance, the fire where we lost two firemen. Mm -hmm. Bridges and Memphis. Bridges. Bridges. Regis Towers. Yeah. Right, Bridges. What killed them more so than fire was smoke. But that fire was so studied, so written about, so transcribed about, that today's firemen can learn from that. The 1994 freeze that we had... Ice storm number five. Storm. Fact, oh, yeah. I, I was battalion chief at that time. I made a second alarm <clears throat> on Williamsburg off of Poplar over near Memphis State. You couldn't even see the smoke. You couldn't see the fire. But it was a second alarm. This was several days after we had the freeze and things began to melt. And these tree limbs were falling on these power lines and they were arcing and they were shorting out and that power was shooting through and it blew the meters right off of the house. And we had four houses in a row on Williamsburg where you couldn't even see fire or smoke. All the wiring in the flooring, all the appliances were on fire. All the wiring in the attic, everything was on fire. That was another fire that we wrote a complete study on written log of that fire is so advantageous to the future fireman to study. 
because similar situations will occur. Talk about history repeating itself. Yeah. Fires repeat themselves. They will, they will happen. The knowledge that these firemen are getting today is so much greater than what we had back then. And it's, it's so advantageous for them to have that. So when you came on, did they have the filter master that yes. just came in? So they, that was just... Yes, they, they, were, they were there when I came on, yes. That's going to bring to mind one particular experience that I had with the mask. The very first time I actually used it at a fire. I was on seventeens. Uh, uh, we made a fire right there uh, by the zoo where Parkway goes from the north part to the east part, and there was an apartment fire. Well, 13s made the scene, and we were coming in right behind them on 17s. We got on the scene, and uh, they were laying out, getting all prepared and everything like that. When I came off the pumper, we had this the scuba, the, the steel tank ones. But they were not, like everybody in heaven, those were kind of a special thing, right? Right. I grabbed mine, and I put it on. Well, as I ran up to the door, everybody saw me with that mask. My feet didn't touch the ground. They just grabbed me and passed me right through and handed me the line. Well, it was a pre-connect, an inch and a quarter, and the fire, I went in the front door. There was a, a living room area, and the smoke was so thick I couldn't see my hand at all, And I, even though I had the mask on. Well, back then, they fogged up real bad. They really did. I hit the floor with that line and was dragging the line, crawling. Off to my right, I could see the glow of the fire, which was in the kitchen. Through the smoke, I could see the glow. So I started to crawl through. Well, when I got to the doorway between the kitchen and the dining room area, there was something on the floor that I had to crawl over. It looked like a big cushion or something. I thought it might have been a cushion off a couch or something. So I more or less laid down over it and used the nozzle to hit the ceiling and bring that fire down. So I was hitting the fire, and it was turning the steam, and things were beginning to clear. And I was laying there like this with that nozzle, and they were coming. everybody was coming in behind me. Well, I was going to get up. Well, when I did, the mask was all foggy. So I wiped my mask, and I looked at what I was laying on, thinking it was a cushion for a couch. It was a woman. I was laying on her body, mm. and I was looking her straight in the face, and it just floored me. That doesn't leave you either, does it? No, they never leave you, especially the little ones. I'm going to get this off my chest right now. When I was on sixes as a lieutenant, we made a fire. It was on an alleyway off of 5th Street, and we were actually the first ones on the scene. And ones was coming in on the south side, whereas we came in on the north side. When we pulled up, I could see the house. It was down in the alley. It was just a, a shack rambled house. And there were women standing in the alleyway screaming. They're in there, the children. So I looked back at the men, and I hollered, lay out. Well, as they were laying out, I ran down the alleyway. And the, there was two little wooden steps up to a door that were going in to this little shack. Well, I reached up and I grabbed the knob for the screen door, and this is where adrenaline hits you. I grabbed it, and it felt like it was jammed or locked, and I jerked. And when I jerked, I pulled the entire screen door off, just ripped it off and threw it down. 
At that time, I weighed around 225, 240 pounds, somewhere in that area. I took about two steps back, and I hit that door. And me, door, couch, two-by-four, went to the inside. They had a, it was just an unused door. And they had boarded it up with a two-by-four across it and put a couch in front of it. So I just took everything inside with me. I, you know, I was just, adrenaline was driving me crazy. Well, I got in and I hit the floor and it was smoke real thick and I didn't have a mask or anything. <clears throat> and I was crawling all around the room and all of a sudden in the smoke, I saw two little bitty eyes looking me in the eye. And I grabbed this little baby that was standing there and I ran out the door and handed her to the woman and the woman said, there's another one. When I ran back in, I was in the area where I found her off to the left was a bedroom. It was just a solid blaze. I tried to go in, but there was a couch or something, big chair sitting there. And it was burning so bad that you could see the coils of the springs. They were just glowing. That's how hot it was. And I couldn't get in that room. When we knocked the fire down, that's where we found the other one up under the baby bed. They don't leave you. They stay here forever. That's what God made us firemen for. You said you're going there. You didn't have a mask on, and you were doing that. At that particular time, I left the mask on the pumper. I should have grabbed the mask. But when I came off, when I stepped out of the door of the pumper, that's when I saw them screaming. Seconds mattered. That's what God made firemen for. We will continue our interview with retired Chief John Reagan. I want to remind you there are many ways to listen to the Emergency FD Storyline podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Deezer, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, TuneIn Alexa, Pandora, Buzzsprout, and more. You can also find this podcast at our website, which is emergencyfd.com, or at emergencyfdstoryline.com. No matter where you listen, be sure to subscribe and follow to be informed about the next podcast. Now, let's continue our interview with retired Chief John Reagan. We learned more about his start, historic fires in Memphis, the reality of the job, the cost of the job, more stories, and more words from the wise. Well, I wanted to leave the fire department with a good taste in my mouth. I could have stayed 15 more years because I retired at the age of 55. I went on when I was 20. I got on early. Mm. I was supposed to be 21, but <laughs> at the time I applied, the personnel director's secretary was a girl I had dated. <laughs> and she, she got you in there. <laughs> she knew my age, and she knew when I graduated from Christian Brothers High School. So she asked me, she said, when I went up to apply, I actually went up to apply for a different job with the city. And she asked me, well, would you want to be a fireman or a policeman? I said, Lord, yes, I'd like to be one. She said, well, I can get you on. I can, I can take care of the paperwork. And I said, well, go for it. She said, would you want to be a policeman or a fireman? I said, I want to be a fireman because if I'm a policeman, with my temper, I'm going to shoot somebody, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I became a fireman yeah. at age 20. And uh, in fact, I had just turned 20 when I made that, when I got on. So I was on early, and I retired at age 55. 
and I could have stayed 15 more years. So how long were you a private? How long was that? I, oh, I went on into my training, and I was assigned to 17s to the most wonderful captain you'll ever meet, Fred Maddox. I loved old Fred. And Wayman Wheeler, who's in this picture, mm -hmm. was my lieutenant then. And Wayne Fortune and I came out of training and went to 17s together because they had some people who had been promoted and they were just a blank company. Eight years later, Wayne got transferred from uh, 17s over to 28s, which was a double house. And Wayne would call me and tell me, oh man, I'm king of the house over here, because we had always wanted to go to a double house. Because it was hard work being at a single house, more so than a double. What and was he the would, difference in a double house and a single house? <clears throat> well, there's more men to do the, the okay. duties. There's more camaraderie. There's more people to talk to, more companionship. More help when you hit the scene of a fire. It's it's different at a. They had more apparatus or the yeah same? okay yeah a double house they twenty eights they had the pumper and the truck over there okay. But Wayne would call me and tease me and it it, it did get to me, and at that time I had taken every single test I could take. I was number three on the driver's test, number five on the lieutenant's. That's where I was. I was taking both of them. Because after three years, you could take a lieutenant's test, even though you were a private. So I took the driver's test and the lieutenant test for all those years. And I was number three and number five. And our driver at the time had bleeding ulcers. Mm. So they took him and put him in the shop on light duty and put me to driving. And back then, we didn't get out of rank pay. We just rolled, and, or you rolled out of rank, and that was it. Well, I drove 17 for almost two years without pay and taking these tests and being passed over and everything like that. Well, we had Captain Billings was my captain then, and the lieutenant we had was Burroughs, who became director later. Bill Burroughs really? was my lieutenant okay. at the time. Billings was my captain and Burroughs was my lieutenant. Well, I was hoping to make driver. Before the test, before the promotions were made, they just sent another driver over and bumped me back to the rear. It, it really got to me. It really got to me. And as you and I are talking, and you know me from just this conversation, I'm going to say my piece. <laughs> so at that time... Hamilton had what they called, Chief Hamilton at yeah. that time, had what they called an open-door policy. I mean, I was upset as hell. I'll be honest with you, I was. I said to Billings, I said, I'm going downtown tomorrow and talk to Hamilton. Oh, he says, you can't go down there. like I said, but the hell I can't. He's got an open-door policy. I'm going to see him. Back then, Hamilton respected people who respected the job. The day I went, I, I told him, I'm going down there tomorrow. So that morning, I got up and cleaned myself up, put on a suit and a tie. And I went downtown. I looked like a Philadelphia lawyer when I went down there. I was young. I was handsome. I was a robust man. I, I weighed about 190-something pounds. I was solid, solid muscle, man. 
I didn't know this, but another fireman had gone down there the day before to see Hampton in it, blue jeans and a T-shirt, and it pissed Hamilton off for that. So here I come the next day with a suit and a tie and everything, and I go in, and Barbara was his secretary, and I said, Barbara, I want to see Chief Hamilton. She said, well, what's it about? I said, well, it's a personal matter. She says, well, I can talk to him. I said, no, I've got to talk to him. It's a personal matter. So she said, well, I'll tell him. So she went in, and she said, talk to him. She come back out, and she said, have a seat. He'll see you shortly. So I sat down outside, and, man, I sat there for 45 minutes waiting, building steam. <laughs> so when it came time, he said, and he had seen me, like I told you yeah. before, he had seen me at many off-duty fires. He knew me. Yeah. He knew I could fight fire, and he knew I cared about the job. So I go in, and back then we called him the brown-eyed man. In other words, he would stare you down. When he was talking to you, don't you make eye contact and don't look away. You look at him and you pay attention. So I go in and I'm sitting there and we lock eyes. He says, well, what can I do for you, Reagan? I said, well, Chief, I'm here to talk to you about a promotion. Well, then he started. Well, let me tell you something, Reagan. Die to die. When I come on, die to die. And, it, and I listened for a good 15 minutes. He went through a lot of stuff. And he says, now what have you got to say to me? I said, well, Chief, let me tell you. I'm kind of upset, and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting a promotion. I want, a, I want that driver's job. I said, you can check on me. You know me. I have trained so much, and I'm, I look at it this way. When a man comes on this job, he's a liability to the job. First of all, he has no training. He has to, you have to make a complete pension package, and you have to train this man. You have, to, you have to work with him and so on. And for the first few years, he's a liability to the job, really, because you're putting everything into this man. Well, after a certain amount of time, this man, he has the physical ability to do the job, but not the experience to do the job. And over a period of time, that experience comes. And he gets to a point where he gets to where he's at a peak, and he has that experience. After he reaches that peak, after a certain amount of time, his health begins to fail, his age gets him, he begins to wane off of that peak, and he becomes a liability again. But when he's at that peak, that's when the job needs to use him to pass on his experience and knowledge. And I said, I'm at that peak. I'm sharp. I'm like a knife with nothing to cut. And I said, I want to cut. I want to be able to pass things on. I said, I'm at that point where I can pass my knowledge on and experience on to this job. Right in the middle of that sentence, he slapped that desk and that ashtray bounced, and I thought, oh, hell. Uh, <laughs> Opened my mouth too much. He jumped up, and he ran around that desk, and he shoved that hand out and grabbed my hand, and he said, God damn it, Reagan. He said, if I had 50 men that felt the way you do, I'd have the greatest fire department in the world. He said, you going back out there. You'll be hearing from me. Whoa, man, I was pumped, you know. I couldn't even breathe. I ran down those stairs. 
Well, the next morning when I go to work, I go in, and Burroughs and Billings were sitting there, my captain and lieutenant, and myself and Galen Hingson. They asked me, well, did you see Hamilton? I said, yes, I did. And what well, what do you think? I said, well, man, I feel good about what we conversed. And I said, uh, I think I might have gotten me a driver's job. They said, well, that's great. Well, later on, that was, about, that was 7 o'clock when we first sat down. About 10 o'clock, fire phone rang, and Burroughs goes to the phone. He says, Burroughs, 17. He said, yes, sir, and he laid the phone down. Well, he came back over and he whispered to Billings. He said something to Billings I didn't hear. So Billings goes over to the phone. Well, I didn't know what was going on, and I hear Billings over there, yes, sir, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir. Didn't pay any attention. He came back and he sat down. <clears throat> well, I didn't know what was going on. Didn't want to know. Didn't care. I didn't, you know, I felt good about seeing Hamilton the, the day before. About a week later, they started making promotions. Captain Billings was off and Burroughs was there. The fire phone rang. Burroughs goes there and he says, uh, he come back. He said, Reagan, I want to talk to you on the phone. So I go to the phone. It was that captain. He says, Reagan? He said, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I said, any damn thing you want me to he says, can you be downtown tomorrow morning, fully dressed in full dress uniform tomorrow morning? I said, I'll be there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Well, I knew they were making promotions. So I went back to the, I said, yes, sir. I hung up and I went back to the desk and Burroughs says, well, who was that? He knew who it was because he'd answered the phone. He said, who was that? And I said, well, you know who it was. He said, well, what did he say? I said, well, I think I got that driver's job. He said, he wants me to be downtown tomorrow. He laughed, and he says, you didn't get a driver's job. I said, what? He said, check around and see who's going downtown. So, hell, I go to the phone, and I start calling here, calling here, calling here, and finding out who was going downtown for promotions. Well, it was mostly drivers going downtown. So I come back to the desk, and I said, what's going on, Bill? And I said, you know, he said, you made lieutenant. Oh, man. I said, I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. He said, you remember that phone call Billings got the other day? He said, that was Chief Hamilton. And he was asking Billings about you. And later on, I found out from Billings what the conversation was, which Hamilton told him. He said, uh, Billings? He says, is Reagan sitting where he can hear you? He said, yes, sir. He said, well, I'm going to ask you some questions, and all I want you to do is answer yes or no. <laughs> and he said, is Reagan a good firefighter? He said, yes, sir. He says, is he good in the engine house? He said, yes, sir. He says, is he any troubles whatsoever? He says, no, sir. He says, da-da-da-da-da. He says, would you recommend him for a lieutenant's job? He said, yes, sir. And I made lieutenant. So I went downtown, and the next day, and there were 40 people in that room for promotion and four of them I think were from lieutenant to captain the rest were from driver to lieutenant I was the only one that was a private going from private to lieutenant goodness gracious but I attribute that back to those years where all those years were off duty I would fight so many fires because I loved it and I was gaining that experience. 
I was seeing how fires were, how they were fought. I, I learned the language of a fire. A fire talks, and you better listen. And you fight that fire, and it roars. And when that sun gun starts to wane off, it it kind of whines and 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 cries as you're bringing it down. And you know you've got that fire whipped. That's the language of a fire. It will talk to you. And if you want to be on the end of that line, if you if you're on a pumper and you want to be on the end of that line, you better listen to the fire because it will talk to you. That's incredible. That's, that's so good stuff. That's why I'm saying I attribute all those years of that experience I gained off duty as well as on duty. Oh God, the fires! I could, Nicky Brothers, uh, Charles O'Cox Lumber Company, uh, Iverson Pond Piano Company, Railroad Salvage, all these fires, second alarm fires that I made. I mean, I'll give you an example. My wife and I got married in September of 68. Shortly after that, we were living in the University Cabana Apartments, and we had been married six months. Anyway, we went to bed, and we were laying in bed, and I kept hearing these sirens, kept hearing them. So I get up and I walk out, and we are on the second floor of apartment on the end, and I walk out on the balcony and I look east, and the sky is a glow. I knew, <laughs> hey, I know that's 17's territory. That was my company at the time. I was, I was actually a private at the time. And uh, so I ran back in and started putting my clothes on. And my wife raises up in bed. She says, where are you going? I said, honey, I'm going to fight a fire. I put my clothes on and left. I get out of my you might as well say my honeymoon bed, to go fight a fire. And it was Iverson Pond Piano Company. And it was, oh, man. This place made pianos. Millions and millions and millions of little pieces, the little clamors or whatever you call them, all little bitty pieces, the keys and things that go into a piano. There were uh, baskets as big around as this on wheels, with pieces that just fill full, thousands of them throughout the place, and barrels of varnish that they used. Oh, boy, yeah. And, man, this stuff was just, the entire building was on fire. Well, 17s had taken their setup on the south end of the building, which the plug was less than five feet from the wall of the building. Well, Chief Reinhardt was on the scene, and Reinhardt, was he was actually in charge of the shop, and he was on the scene, and they were all in there fighting fire and all this, and 17s was on that, that uh, plug. <clears throat> so I saw what was going on, and that fire was coming. It was steady coming down. And I told Chief Reinhardt, I said, Chief, I says, uh, I think we ought to move 17's pumper off that plug. It's sitting against that wall. I said, there's another plug less than 100 feet you know, over the train track over here on the other side. He said, well, let's do it. So Hinkson was on the pumper. I was on my day off. So Hinkson and I, we disconnected 17s, 
moved it over to the other plug and rehooked. It wasn't 30 minutes later, that fire hit that south wall, that south wall fell on that plug. But that was just one of the fires. I, I you know, it was just, I was, I fought that fire. I, I went on in and got on the line and fought that fire for, until sun up. And then I go back home <laughs> and I look like a burnt bug. And my wife says, are you going to do that from now on? I said, I don't know, but I can't promise I won't. <laughs> but here's one thing that, that my wife will tell you this. She got mad at me for this. When we got married, I had long, curly eyelashes. Oh, she just loved my eyelashes. I come home one morning. I'd been in the fire. It was a flashover. I had no eyelashes or eyebrows, and my face looked like leather where that heat had hit my face and burnt my eyelashes off. She got mad at me for that. <laughs> they never grew back like they were. But if you fought fire, you, you, you know that it penetrates your body. My hair would smell like smoke until it grew out. For days, I could smell smoke in my hair as it grew out. And, and it, it's a smell you never forget. And here I am, 82 years old. We had a fire down the street. Just You can go down there and look, four houses down, there's a slab. The next day, I went down there to just see if I could locate the origin smell hit me, the hair on my arms just <clears throat> that adrenaline hit me like you wouldn't believe. It was just like a horse kicked me. It, I wanted, you know, oof. it's an adrenaline pump when you smell that. And I still get it at 82 years old. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I didn't know this when I was young. And I really didn't know it for several years after I was on the fire department. But I was born to be a fireman. I really was. I mean, as I said, God chose me for that particular thing, just like he chose me to be a father and have this family. God chose me to be a fireman, and I'm so happy. It's powerful stuff. Let me go back. Uh, how about some big fires? Were you part of Russwood? Russwood was my baptism of fire. Tell me about that. The building itself, the construction, the bleachers, everything wood. And it was just solid wood. That day, we had gusts of up to 40-mile-an-hour wind. It was on an Easter Sunday. Evidently, that fire started from somebody leaving cigarette butts or something of this nature in some paper areas that caught fire. Well, it just started out small. The first company on the scene came in on the Madison Street side. Seven's on the scene, don't see anything. They didn't see anything. Then the winds hit. The winds would gust. They would they'd come and go, come and go. Well, the company on the backside come in, hollered, second alarm, give me give me second alarm. Madison Street side was, I guess, almost three, three or four stories high itself. And underneath, there were little small buildings, I mean businesses, like a cigarette shop or a coffee shop that were built into the backside of it. 
and there was a lot of combustible material there, as well as the bleachers and everything being combustible. At that time, I was on 17. I mean, when we left 17s, we could see the smoke and the glow, and we were way out east. Our first assignment at that particular time was to fight the fire. The Baptist Hospital, it was across the street from that, and the side of the Baptist Hospital got so hot Oh, yeah. that all the windows were cracking and they evacuated because it was facing the park itself. We came in on the southeast corner okay. Okay. back southeast. in that area Okay, is where we were at was actually where the fire was the backside of the fire because it was traveling to the west because the winds were coming from the east. And it was blowing it into the major structure of the uh, area, which there were just tons and tons and tons of wood. It looked like a lumber yard. Well, there wasn't a way to put it out. On the Madison Street side, they had uh, there was a truck that had set up out there. That truck burned up mm. because the air brakes heated up. They couldn't get the brakes unlocked, and it just sat there and burned up. Hose lines, which water running through them, burst from the heat because it would burn the outer jacket, and the outer jacket would scorch so much that it would weaken, and it would heat up and actually catch on fire, and it would look like a balloon. The rubber on the inside would just blow out, and it was bursting hose that had water running through them, and that's how hot it was. And now, thank God, we were on the back. You could actually feel the wind blowing against your back where it was actually... Not only was gusts of wind, but fire sucks oxygen from all directions. And it was so hot that it was just sucking air from behind us, and it was causing its own draft. It was creating its own cyclone, is what I could say. There was no way to put it out. You just had to try to cover exposures and uh, let it burn itself out. So fires burn up and down, and they draw their own air when they get hot enough. So that's what Russwood was like. It was just that hot. Now, after a certain amount of time, they pulled us off and got us on our pumper, and we rode the neighborhoods. Well, this thing was throwing so much stuff out. It was landed on houses all around the neighborhood, and we were having houses to catch on fire, roofs catching on fire all around. So we had patrols, uh, pumpers patrolling streets looking for fire. I've never seen that before or since. Let me ask you. Let me go back. Uh, how about some big fires? The fire were Fitch. Fitch and King. King. When they died. That, tell me about that. That one. was on a Sunday morning. Were you on at that time? No, I was off. You were off. And it was out of my territory, too. The building that they made was right there at, the, it was just a little bit west of Cleveland on Madison. Mm -hmm. It was a combination Drugstore, hardware store, and pharmacy. They went in on the Madison Street side, I think. And I, whether they had their masks or not, I can't really say. I don't know. I think Fitch was dead when they brought him out. King, as far as I know, he was the longest living fireman in a comatose state in the history. I think he was in an actual comatose state for, what, 15, 16 yeah, years? Like but now, the fire itself, I don't know how the fire started, but all of those things combined 
put off a chemical that to this day they don't even actually know what to call it. It was such a mixture of different things. The drugs, the paints, the aerosols, the wood, the plastics, everything combined made such a caustic gas. And you're still talking about the time when you had the filter mask, too, at that point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, they went in. The thing that was most prevalent about the fire itself was the combination of uh, chemicals that, that actually killed them. But when they brought Fitch out, he was, he was dead then. But King was in that coma for so many years. There was a lot of studies done on that fire. I'm going to have to go to Go. This is very, very close to me here. So you're going to have to forgive me if I can go through this. It's okay. As you say, these things never leave you. Poncho. Martignano Lerma. Mm. The father. Poncho was on the rescue squad riding out of Sixes. I was a lieutenant on Sixes. The night that fire came in, it came in at the old Gillies restaurant. Somebody had taken it and they more or less turned it into a whorehouse. And they had partitioned it off in different little small, just mattress-sized rooms. That fire came in and it was weird. They were calling in pieces one by one by one by one by one. It was about one o'clock in the morning. We were standing there in the lounge, about six or eight of us standing there listening to this communications. I was hungry as a wolf, and I'd gone in that kitchen looking for something to eat, and I couldn't find a thing anywhere. I mean, I was just, I was hungry. Poncho, we called him Poncho. His name was Martignano Lerma. Now, he come from San Antonio. He was a pastry chef in San Antonio. Oh, he could make heaven out of hell in the kitchen. Oh, he was so good. Well, Poncho come up to me, and he said, Ludy, he says, Ludy, you hungry? I said, yeah, Poncho, I'm about starved. He said, okay. Well, he walked off. Well, about five minutes later, he come back and he had an egg sandwich. He had to lay that egg. I don't know where it come from. <laughs> he handed me that egg, egg sandwich. I said, oh, God, thank you, Poncho, and I was eating that egg sandwich. Well, as I was finished it and everything, I told him, I said, and I looked at Poncho and I said, Poncho, I said, uh, Y'all are going to be called down there. I said, y'all about next to go. I said, now, be he careful. He was in your engine house, He right? was in my engine house. Wow. And I said, y'all be, y'all be careful when y'all go down there. I mean, it ain't right. Y'all be careful. They got the call not more than 10 minutes after I said that. About 20 minutes later, Poncho was dead. What happened was the front of the building was brick, and it had a little alcove and then the doorway into the building. Once you went into the doorway, it being what it was, a whorehouse, they had taken plywood and built little walls like this on either side of that alcove going back about six feet, and it partitioned off all around. They went in through that front door. I don't know whose line they had or whatever. They were trying to advance that line. And as they got a few feet back, I guess you could say it was a flashover. Uh, maybe you could call it a backdraft. The building in the back was building up so much heat and smoke and everything. Well, somehow or another, it collapsed. And when it collapsed, it forced all that flame towards them. As they tried to crawl out, three of them hit that 
petition and went out the front door. But Poncho hit it and went down the wrong side of it. It was just a brick outside wall, and he couldn't get through, and that fire got him. They had to use a battering ram to break through that brick wall. And when they brought him out, he had his mask on. And when they took his mask off, mm. the mask had melted to him. He had a closed casket funeral. I have pictures of it. And I was one of the pallbearers at his funeral. He was such a good guy. Oh, God, he was such a good guy. This was several months after he was dead. I was sitting in the engine house, and I was sitting at the watch desk, and I was looking out at my equipment, and they had pulled sixes out to wash it, and the fire squad was sitting there. And on the side, you know, they have the plaques on them. Yeah. Clifford Davis was on the side of that. And I thought, oh, God. So I picked up the phone. And I called downtown. I think Barbara, was, I, I, she may have still been the chief secretary at the time. I said, Barbara, I need to talk to Chief Smith. He was in JR. And she said, she knew who I was. She said, uh, well, what's it about? I said, it's a very, very personal matter. And I need to ask him something. She said, okay. So she put me on hold. Well, it was just a few seconds. He come on. He said, hey, J.J., what can I do for you? I said, Chief, I got a problem. He said, what? I said, I'm sitting here looking at the fire squad where Poncho died off of. And on the side of it, it says Cliff Davis. Yeah. He was an old politician from years ago. Yeah. And I said, it just hurts me to see that. He says, my God, Reagan, he says, I haven't thought of that. He said, thanks for calling me. He said, I'll, I'll take care of it. 30 minutes later, here come two guys from the shop, and we're measuring the side of it. <laughs> then they put Martignano Lerma on the side of it. But when they put it out of service, they took it and they put it on Six's pumper. You know those memories, I know... And the memories, how powerful those are. Tell me, really, I, I know back in the day, I think I've, I've heard guys tell me, you just sucked it up. You'll be okay. If you were telling the younger guys about how to handle those memories, because they're not easy, what would you tell them? The love of your wife and children, mm -hmm. the love of your faith with God, those are what gets you through. There have been some times... When I think back on these situations where I lost friends, I lost about a dozen of them. And uh, Poncho, he's so vivid in my mind. I can see his face right now. They don't go away. When I was young on the fire department, when I would see death, especially children, it affected me, but not like it did after I had my own. I made a fire, a wreck, an accident, young man in a car, coming down a hill with a sharp curve at the end, very sharp. He was coming very fast, and he sideswiped a bread truck. And as he sideswiped it, he ran off the road, 
and hit a brick abutment to a small bridge going over a railroad track. And the car caught fire, and he died. We got on the scene, naturally, put the fire out, and he was sitting in the seat with his arm hanging out the window, and he was just burnt slap-dab up on that, like this. Couldn't recognize anything, hardly. But we had to get him out. And as we take him out, the backside is not burned because he's in the seat. His wallet in the back pocket. I took his wallet out to try to identify him when I looked at that. That was my son. He looked so much like my son. I, I knew it wasn't. He was about my son's age. And wow, it, it, it hits you. It hits you to where your whole frame of mind changes. After that happened, I made a, another wreck. This kid had the family car, a young kid. Somehow he missed the road and he went off and he hit a telephone pole and he pretty much tore up the car. But he was okay, but his arm was just mangled. And the, his, we had gotten him out and the unit was on the scene tending to him. He must have called his dad on the cell phone or something because his dad shows up on the scene. His dad walked up and he looked at him, turned around and he looked at the car. And he starts to cuss the kid, hollering at him, cussing him. I lost it. I went over and grabbed that gentleman <laughs> by his back, and I drug him off, and I slapped him right in the face. I did. I slapped him. I said, that's your son. He's bleeding. He's broke. I said, if you say another word like that to that boy, I said, I'm going to break your nose. I mean, that's how these things yeah. affect you over the time. And then the sailors, the six of them, they ran into the Vietnam Memorial marker in that little red pickup truck. I made that call. God, horrible. And they were partying and drinking. Well, they run through a red light. Well, a cop car there turns a the light on and starts after them. They were going up Jefferson towards the river, and they broadsided that memorial, and it caught fire. I was battalion one that night. One of them that was sitting in the passenger side of the front seat had tried to crawl out, and he crawled out and fell on the ground, and all that gasoline and stuff there, he was laying in that fire just rolling and rolling. There wasn't a stitch of clothes left on his body, not even his shoes. He was burnt, so just burnt up. And this kid's rolling in this fire. Chief, what am I going to do? And I looked at him, and I said, just wet him down, wet him down. In the front of the pickup truck where it hit, there was a kid up against the windshield just mashed and dead. The driver sitting there dead. One of the kids that was in the back had been thrown completely over everything and was laying up behind the memorial with a broken leg. Two blocks away, somebody found a kid running down the street on fire, and they stopped and picked him up, took him to the hospital. He was one of the kids that was in that. And he was running. He was running down the street on fire. And there were six little sailors. God, they were teenagers, you may as well say. Accumulated stress syndrome. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to that. Stress. I made a call at the old Firestone plant. A guy, he was a sailor, but he had a part-time job with Firestone. And they had these big presses that would mold these tires. One of them had gone bad, and they had shut it down. Well, he was up inside the damn thing working on it. Somehow became active and pressed him. Mm. 
And the kid that was working with him did everything he could to get him out. And finally, he got the press to open. And when he did, the guy fell out on the floor. Well, they had a small infirmary. And they had this registered nurse that was on duty, a registered nurse. So anyway, we get on the scene. And we walk into the infirmary, and they had drugged this guy into the infirmary and had him up on a table. Here the nurse is sitting in a chair in shock. The kid that helped drag him or was working with him was sitting in the floor crying. This guy was laying up on the table. From his crotch to his kneecap, you could see meat and bone just hanging out. Everything here had been pressed into his chest cavity. This kid was still alive, and he's laying on that table. The unit's coming in about the time. I mean, I'm, I'm standing there next to the kid, and I'm, I'm trying, he's, he's moving, rolling and groaning, and I'm trying to hold him. Hey, I said, work on him. Y'all get on him, get on him, do something. They start trying to work on that leg. Well, I'm holding him down, and he's saying, oh, God, oh, God. And I said to him, I said, son, I said, if you want to pray, I'll help you. He went comatose. But these are things that stay, they stress you, they stress you, they, they stay with you. Well, back to the sailors in the truck. I came home the next morning. I Usually on Saturdays, when I would work Saturdays, and I'd get off on Sunday mornings, I'd stop at the donut place, pick up a dozen donuts or so, and bring them home to the kids. I came home that morning, and we were sitting at the breakfast table, I looked around the table at my kids and my wife. I just started to cry. I couldn't stop. I cried that whole day thinking about these children here at my table and the parents of these children somewhere having to know their child is dead. And these things, as I got into my further years on the fire department with children, they began to tell on you, accumulated stress. That's one thing these firemen today need to understand. If you want to, you can be glib about it, but they're going to stay with you. They need to be aware, depending on where they're at, trauma that they see, because it can kill you, because people commit suicide. But, like I say, what gets you through that is love. Value your family. Value your God. I could see the face of that woman I was laying on top of right now, and I was a private. They don't ever leave you. They don't ever leave you. You have to realize that that's why God made fire. I went to Emmitsburg, Maryland for ICS training in the uh, late 80s. And I was at Emmitsburg, and we had retired firemen from all over the country who were instructors, who were training us on the ICS system. There was one in particular that was real friendly with me. He was a uh, uh, retired chief from California. Well, anyway, we would have our classes in the mornings and afternoons, but for lunch, we would go out to the little uh, pavilion that we had out there, a little park area. Well, we went out there one day, and we were sitting there having lunch. But we were sitting there, and this chief asked me, he said, Reagan, what makes you want to be a fireman? I told him, I said, well, I said, the thing that is so important to me about being a fireman 
is we're chosen people. We are people who are there for other people, not for ourselves, but for others. The feeling that you get when you make a fire, and at a fire, these people who are there, this is their lives, their possessions, everything they have. And here is the most dire moment of their entire lives. They're losing everything out of all the people in the world. God chose you to be right there at that time for them. You can't replace it. That feeling is so fulfilling. It's not one of, oh man, I'm Superman or anything like that. It's the feeling of, like I said, God is using you and show you. And he looked at me and he says, damn, Reagan, you will make me want to start all over. <laughs> but that's the way I felt about being a fireman. It wasn't the hero. This, this picture I just showed you of them dragging me out of the fire, my wife says, when did that happen? We were married at the time. She didn't know I did that. I didn't come home and tell her of all these things. I didn't want her to worry. But these are things that I kept in me for many years. Now that the danger is over, I can speak about them. You remember the movie uh, Backdraft? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were sitting here one day. And my daughter, she was sitting over on the couch. My wife was on the couch. And I was sitting in my lounge chair, and we were watching it. I had been in two backdrafts. I know what they are. The movie was so fictitious, it was unreal. And my daughter, she looked over at me, and she says, Dad, did you ever do that? And I said, yeah, honey. I've been in backdrafts. She got up and she came over and sat in my lap and hugged me. She said, Dad, I never really thought of you as a hero. Wow. Wow. When your children say that, it's special. That's being a fireman. Firemen are not heroes. They're servants. They're servants of God. That's what they are. As my wife says, the fire department was my first love. My family, her and my family, they are my first love. But I will never forget that first love. You never get over that one. And that's one thing I'll never get over is the love I had for the fire department. Well, Jerry Reagan, that's a good thing, and I appreciate you spending time. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Words from the Wise, retired Chief John Reagan, my guest on Emergency FD Storyline. I do want to take a moment to thank Memphis firefighter Justin Couples for getting in touch with me about interviewing his neighbor, John Reagan. And it was a great story suggestion. Thanks so much, Justin. I also want to thank my friend Bill Edelman for the use of his photos, all part of the Edelman's History of the Memphis Fire Department. You can find it on Facebook. Great stuff there. And on another subject, you can help continue the production of Emergency FD Storyline by donating any amount at our website, emergencyfd.com or emergencyfdstoryline.com. Look for the donate page on our website. It would be appreciated. If you would like to contact Emergency FD Storyline with comments or to suggest a story, just like Justin Couples did, the firefighter in Memphis, Email us at storyline at emergencyfd.com. That's storyline at emergencyfd.com. And you can find us on Facebook. Look for Emergency FD. I'm Tom Mann, and I want to thank you for listening. There are many stories coming. 
on the Emergency FD Storyline. Join us.